This is the podcast of the Modern War Institute at West Point, an integrative look at war, policy, and leadership. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi of the Modern War Institute. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Dr. Jacob Graygill, the George H.W. Bush Senior Associate Professor of International Relations at the School of Advanced International Studies, Johns Hopkins University. We'll be talking to him about the concept of limited war and how it is shaping the global security environment in Europe and around the world. I want to welcome Dr. Gregel to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Given that some of our listeners may not be familiar with the concept of limited war, I want to jump right in with how you define limited war. Um, look, I mean, limited war, uh, it's a broad concept, and it's kind of fuzzy because every war, after all, is limited, right? It's limited in geography and the means used and often the objectives. But the, the, there's a whole theory and a whole literature on limited war, and broadly speaking, it has two components, uh, partly tied to the historical periods uh, that they examine. A pre-Cold War period uh, in which limited war essentially meant a war uh, that a state engages in to conquer a piece of territory, a small piece of territory. Uh, it's a war of territorial adjustment, right? You want to conquer a city, a river, a mountain, or something like this. And therefore, you don't want to destroy the hostile state. Uh, you just want that piece, that sliver of territory. So you're not going to mobilize your whole population. You're not going to mobilize your whole army. You're going to go in, take that piece of territory, and then hopefully engage in some sort of negotiations that would settle the hostilities. In the Cold War, in the U.S. in particular, that concept um, was examined and, and restored in many ways because it was an attempt to answer a question. And the question is, how do you respond to Soviet conventional war in region X or Y uh, without triggering nuclear annihilation, right? So uh, the question, therefore, is almost like, you know, how do you fight a war, a limited conventional war, under this threat of nuclear uh, uh, exchange. So you had you know, great minds like Bernard Brody, Robert Osgood in the 50s and 60s that were thinking about this. And that concept, there's a whole sort of American theory of limited war, um, was very popular uh, up until the Vietnam War. And after the Vietnam War, which was seen as one of the limited wars, perhaps the pinnacle of limited war, um, that concept sort of, lost appeal because it was seen as limiting American superiority, military superiority on the ground, and therefore limited also the limiting the possibility of victory. You know, that, that was the outcome of Vietnam. But again, I think it's coming back, um, the, the, the term and the phrase and the sort of the theory behind it. And very briefly, I mean, it means that it's a war fought for limited objectives with limited means limited in scope in many ways, right? You, it's not, uh, the objective is not the annihilation, the full destruction of the, of the hostile state of the rival, but some other smaller objective, mostly geographically constrained, and therefore also limited means, right? You don't need to mobilize your entire population, economy, army, because you don't want to destroy the enemy. You just want to take a piece of land, a city, a river, and so on and so forth. And it's similar to the Cold War uh, set of challenges because in many ways, a state that fights a limited war 
imposes or self-imposes uh, certain uh, restraints on, on, on himself, right? Because it doesn't want to, it could, but it doesn't want to escalate the war because one of the objectives is to avoid a larger confrontation, a larger war, right? So it's another way to put it, there's in, in the limited war, there's, there's a trade-off. The trade-off between the risk of a larger war that you, you, you don't want to, and the risk of not achieving whatever small objective that you set yourself uh, in front of you, so it's it's um, and, and a trade off. I think it's it's obviously uh, more pronounced uh, with uh, in, in case of a hostility um, among or between nuclear armed states, right? Because that's the pinnacle of escalation that you do not want to engage in, but it's always in the background. You've written a lot about how limited war as a conflict model is showing up more recently especially in regards to Russian action in the Caucasus and Ukraine. How has limited war manifested itself in those places? Right. And how do you think the concept of limited war will manifest itself in the future? Uh, well, you know, um, up front, it's hard to speculate, right? So I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but it seems to be there is a trend here, especially in the case of Russia, is that they um, – they do have an objective they want to avoid, right? And the objective they want to avoid is a direct confrontation, large confrontation with the West, namely NATO, NATO and the US, right? That's something that they certainly don't want to engage in because still the, the balance of force and the balance of power really favors us and not them. So that's something they want to avoid, but they also want to achieve certain objectives in the, on the regional scale. Uh, and those objectives are some form of restoration of their uh, uh, empire, if you want to call it, or just broadly speaking of their influence in the region. So how do you do that, right? And I think that both the wars in Georgia, but in particular the past couple of years, Crimea and, and the war in eastern Ukraine have sort of indicated how they might go about doing so, right? And it seems like it's it's a mix of uh, very quick attacks um, that uh, catch everybody by surprise, uh, limited in a sense that they don't go for the capital, they don't go to Kiev, for instance, but they are limited to a specific, very narrowly defined geography. Uh, with limited forces, um, Crimea was a great example, is that they send in the so-called little green men, unmarked um, special forces, essentially, uh, because they're not sure what the response is, right? So if the, if, they, if the response is going to be an escalation by the targeted state, they might actually retreat because they want to avoid a large confrontation. So they And if, if you send limited forces, small forces, you can do it. You don't want to do a mass invasion, right? Um, and uh, they count on the speed of their uh, projection of force on, on, on their attack. They want to achieve... You know, the term is usually, it's a French term, fait accompli, sort of a done fact. They want to change things on the ground quickly and force the defender to go on the offensive, right? So you, you go in 10 miles in or 50 miles in or whatever is the, the limited uh, geographical uh, objective, and you just sit there and then you force the enemy or the, the targeted state in this case to, to either do nothing, in which case you achieve everything you do, or actually to go on the offensive and force force a rollback, which is very, very hard to do politically and militarily. And and that's that's what I think they've been pursuing um, in Ukraine over the past uh, uh, couple of years. And that's what the threat is, I think, now 
uh, towards mostly the Baltic states, but also throughout Central European states. NATO is very much framed as a way to deter Russian aggression, but you've written that NATO's conception of how to do that, namely trading space and land in Eastern and Central Europe for time, is no longer effective if Russia is fighting a limited war. What's a better construct for NATO's defense? Um, right, it's a good question. I mean, look, defense in depth um, against uh, a limited attack is, is useless, right? Because the limited attack does not want to penetrate in depth of the of whatever target they have. So you can't trade space for time. So, um, and that's usually in, in brief, the old model of NATO is that we're going to wait for a mass attack of of the enemy and we can, uh, you know, mobilize forces while they penetrate X amount of miles uh, into our territory because, you know, we have to stop them. They're not going to stop by themselves. A limited, limited attack, it means that they're going to stop before even we're, mobilize our forces. So the defense has to be conceptually very different. Uh, it has to be, you know, I, I don't have a great term for it, but it has to be local defense, maybe it's local frontline defense. The defense has to be there on the line, on the front line, because uh, it's, it's going to be there that the, 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 whether the victory or, or, def, or defeat is, is achieved. So that means several things, but um, it means definitely greater reliance on local forces. And therefore, those allies that are on the front line have to mobilize in ways that have not done in the past. So I'm already thinking about this. I have been thinking about it over several years now, how to do that. It's it's really sort of old frontier defense or, or border defense to some form, in some form of fashion. And it's more than just putting troops on the path of the enemy as as tripwires, right? That they will, uh, you know, they'll be eliminated or or attacked, and therefore the great the alliance will mobilize. It means really hindering the advance of the enemy right at the very moment they cross the frontier. Because again, in the case of the Baltics, they might stop at ten miles in, five miles there, twenty miles in, whatever the the mileage is. So um, it's local defense, uh, which means also for the U.S. Uh, as a as the main ally ally of these of, of these countries uh, a much more substantial uh, forward presence it doesn't mean big bases in Germany it means um, a lot of troops uh, spread out over uh, a fairly lengthy front in central eastern Europe um, so that's you know in brief what what that might mean um, if I'm an Estonian military official, how does the concept of limited war and the way that Russia has been practicing it affect the way that I go about defending my country? Right. Well, if you're if you're in Estonia, an Estonian, right, it means a couple of things. One is, um, um, I guess there, there can be a debate whether it's purely defensive. So you really sort of engage in uh, the development of doctrine as well as capabilities for territorial defense, guerrilla warfare, landmines, border guards, and so on and so forth, national guards, uh, uh, giving spreading sort of arms among population, uh, sort of the Swiss model of defense, right? Where pretty much everybody's armed and don't try to advance in those valleys because everybody will start shooting at you. So that's, that's one model. Uh, the other model, which is not mutually exclusive of the, of the first one, is develop some sort of uh, offensive capabilities, uh, namely the capability to strike beyond the uh, narrow, narrowly defined front line into the territory of the enemy, both to 
hinder the advance of the enemy, you know, you strike staging areas, logistics, and so on and so forth, but also to um, uh, hinder and, and uh, degrade their capability to control, particularly the air uh, domain over your land. Um, you know, one of the, the changes of the past, say, several, you know, two or three decades is that um, it's not just us, but our rivals have developed great capabilities to prevent us and our allies from functioning over their own uh, territory, right? It's the so-called A2 AD uh, set of platforms and capabilities. So, you know, um, all of the Baltics airspace is under essentially control or under threat from um, Russian missiles. One third, probably more of the Polish airspace is also under threat uh, from Russian um, uh, anti-air capabilities. So those allies ought to have some sort of capability to, to degrade those Russian A2 and D platforms for the simple reason that without that, it will be very difficult for their allies, us, to reinforce them. It's going to be difficult to fly in into Estonia once conflicts start because it means it's probably losing a lot of uh, assets uh, while we reinforce it. One, you know, another way to put it is you know, a re-entry into a theater of conflict these days is much more difficult than it has been in, a, in the past. So we have to figure out and allies have to figure out how to reopen that window, how to um, allow re-entry, uh, reinforcements from their allies. I found it really interesting in your recent Parameters article talking about arming offensively and giving those frontline states the capability to conduct middle-of-the-deep strikes as a way to increase the cost and reduce the capability of an aggressor state. Are there any threats or risks associated with giving those frontline states this capacity? Well, you know, that, that, that's, that's a good question because usually that's how we thought about uh, and that's how we think about allies is that we don't want them to have too many offensive capabilities because that creates, uh, or shall we think, it creates instability in the region, right? We almost give the trigger of a war or escalation to an ally. And, you know, I think the fear is definitely was in many ways justified. Um, but I think that, you know, that, that there are a couple of things. One is um, the technology has changed over the past several decades, and it's much easier for these allies to acquire those capabilities, much easier than it was, I think, in the 1950s and 60s. So that's one. Second, I think we have to keep in mind that most of these allies, and I think all of them, are really status quo states, status quo powers, right? They're not going to use these capabilities to start a war. You'll be really suicidal if you're Estonia to engage in a preventive war against Russia, right? Um, so, you know, even if they have would have some limited capability, small capability to strike Russia, and again, we're not talking about huge capabilities here, um, they, they're not going to use it uh, as a, a first uh, first strike. They, they will probably, they'll, they'll have to wait for an attack from, from Russia in this specific case um, uh, in order to use them, because otherwise the alliance will not never come to their aid. So I think that there's a political restraint that is present that we have to keep in mind when we talk about potentially arming these uh, uh, offensively these states. Um, you know, and last point is again this, the size of these states is you know in some cases very small. The Baltics in some case could be larger and sort of middle power, Poland or Romania, but they're still small in comparison to Russia or the U.S. in the back. And I think that similarly, it will be uh, analogous logic is, is, is applicable to 
to Asia, right? Even Japan, the, the largest of all of them, still in a, in a sort of balance of power, one against one uh, with China, uh, it would uh, not be able to to withstand one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one confrontation. So it has to rely, these states have to rely on the alliance that is behind them. And in order to guarantee that the alliance will be behind them, they'll have to be very moderate, restrained in how they use potentially uh, these, these, these offensive capabilities they may potentially acquire. So some way to look, another way to look at it is that the risks are there, but I think they're not as big as some people make them. I've seen arguments either way, but the NATO model you're talking about isn't necessarily an offensive model, just a different way or an update to the old NATO defensive model. Right now, we still function under the old Western European-centric model. The frontline states don't really have the capabilities Defense, to support the right. model we're discussing. With that in mind, if Russia were to invade Estonia tomorrow, how would that operation play out, and how would our reaction be different than the reaction to, say, Ukraine? Um, well, on your last point, I mean, that's a different case than Ukraine. Right? Ukraine was and is not a NATO member. Uh, Estonia and, and all the other Baltics are, so... If we say that we're willing to take some territorial adjustment in Estonia, right, um, then we're, we're saying that NATO is really not uh, what it's meant to be. Uh, and and we, we are willing to negotiate an attack against a NATO ally as opposed to responding to it. So it, that will be uh, an enormous success in this case for Russia. Uh, it will be the demise of the credibility of Article 5 of NATO. So essentially, Russia would show that you can attack a NATO ally and with a limited strike, limited war, right, and achieve territorial adjustment. But most importantly, then you can reach a negotiated settlement. So Article 5 is not really a, 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 um, an article that defends, um, defends for the defense of these allies. It's just a um, promise that it's really not that serious. So that, that's the first point. I think that we have to be careful in saying that will be a similar outcome than Ukraine. I think it will be really the end of NATO. Now, what it means on the ground, I think, you know, right now it's, it's hard to say because we, the U.S., but also the, the local states have not fully developed yet the, both the thinking and the capabilities necessary for uh, defending against a limited attack against Russia. And that's why the, the situation, I think, is highly unstable and dangerous. I think more or less we know what we need to do. The question is whether there's political will. But what, what we need to do is, is obviously encourage and help those countries to develop serious local defense forces in a variety of formations, right? It can be conventional forces, border guards, national guards, uh, strengthen their police force uh, because a lot of the potential types of attack that may occur are somewhere on the borderline between a conventional military attack and, say, some sort of... Um, something that looks like a criminal attack. I don't know, you know, a motorcycle gang penetrating Estonia, right? Or or uh, even more complicated, you know, a peacekeeping force, uh, Russian quote-unquote peacekeeping force coming into the aid of some Russian minority in some, in some town in Estonia or Latvia. So then you have to sort of develop a spectrum of forces capable of dealing with a spectrum of types of attacks. For us, I think it really means that we need to have a presence in those countries um, and not just the promise of a quick reaction force. Because again, here, the point is the quick reaction force will take days to arrive. And, and you know, hopefully maybe hours, but really it will be more days. And by then, 
it wouldn't, the, the, the task is not going to be to protect the territory. It's going to be to reclaim the territory that whoever, you know, whatever format of Russian forces has conquered. Right. And that is politically much more difficult, right? You have to mobilize public opinion in Europe and the U S to reconquer some territory lost. It's military much more difficult. Um, you know, basic problem of offense versus defense. Um, and it creates, um, and puts a burden on us because then we are the ones that have to escalate the war. And again, moment you have to escalate politically, militarily, uh, on the ground, it's much more difficult to do. So the point being is that a quick reaction force is great, but it really the presence, physical presence on the front line is much more necessary, much more, it's a much greater deterrent. So let's discuss U.S. forward presence. The U.S. has been pretty active in the last five or 10 years in Eastern Europe, whether it's Romania or Poland or most recently with Atlantic mm-hmm. Resolve. Do you see a movement of U.S. troops from where they're currently stationed in Germany and Italy to a more forward position? Um, yes. Um, you know, there'll be probably different terms for it, um, for political reasons, for diplomatic reasons. Uh, we're not going to establish some gigantic base in, uh, you know, Poland or Romania like we had in Vicenza or, or, or Germany, um, in part because it's politically more difficult, in part because it's not, that's not what it's needed, right? Um, it, what is needed is much more sort of spread out, constant presence um, along a much longer uh, front line in that region. So that's um, and 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 that I think that's that's where it seems to trend or the direction that that's where we're going. Um, it it also means you know that it's going to be a different type of um, presence, and and if hopefully it'll never happen, but if there's a war of war. And what I mean by that, I think it's going to be much more localized. A lot of, you know, if you think about a limited war, it's really fought at the lowest level. Obviously, all wars are fought at the lowest level, but in moment you have time to think about actions and operations, then, you know, it, it percolates up the decision making, right? Here, it's, it's short, limited territorial grab to which you'll have to have a response that is quick, on this on the on the spot under difficult circumstances often without reinforcements and perhaps even without control of the air which to which we're kind of used over the past uh, several decades so it puts actually much greater burden on um the small uh, you know platoon or you know uh, small group uh, rather than uh, sort of back in the base or back in, the, in Washington or in the political capitals. Um, and that it's, it's a different type of uh, operation that I think we're used in, in, uh, in Europe over the past several decades, right? It's really sort of small localized operations. That's an interesting point. I'd like to touch on the small unit character you're talking about in terms of both frontline states and in terms of U.S. forces in Europe. Let's start with the frontline states at the tactical level, the platoon, company, battalion level. How does the concept of limited war we've been talking about affect those leaders' training and their understanding of their role in the defense of their state? Um, you know, it's, again, it's hard for me to say on this because it's speculative. But a couple points, I think. Um, one is that uh, because of time, um, that level, platoon, company, and so on and so forth, will have to take decisions that before maybe didn't have to. 
before was told where to go and what to do. Here, they'll have to take decisions, for instance. Um, you know, if you're sitting on the front line on the border of, I don't know, Estonia, and you see a large, um, not to use it, the, the, the group that we mentioned before, a motorcycle gang, a Russian motorcycle gang trying to cross the border, then you'll have to decide what to do with them. Do you stop them? Do you let them go? And you don't have many, many of the times to ask somebody above you to do this, right? So the, the decision is really, the burden of the decision, it seems to me, it's at that level at this point because of the speed and the size of the type of, uh, of, of threat. Um, so that's one. Second is um, you will have to also play, uh, coordinate much more because of just sheer size. It's a small size. Uh, that you uh, of your forces, you'll have to coordinate with local allies much more than you did before because of the complexity of the threat, the complexity of the area, and and the need for um, you know and, and the absence, which would be my last point, the absence of of reinforcement. So you'll have to count much more on these local allies. And the complication of it is that these local allies often are not going to be traditional conventional forces, right? They're going to be um, border guards, police forces, um, armed citizens, right? So it creates sort of a, a spectrum of, of coordination uh, that is uh, much more difficult, right? You're not just coordinated with people that you trained with over the previous years that maybe went to West Point on exchange or, or you know, war colleges on exchange, right? They, they're just local guys that decided to, you know, stop the motorcycle gang or whoever trying to cross the border. You have to figure out how to talk to them, how to deal with them, how to incorporate them if possible at all into your plans and into your decisions. The last point, again, related to this, given the, the hostile environment, the A2 and D environment, among other problems is that um, you will not have necessarily the, the luxury of reinforcements uh, for a prolonged period of time, whether it's days or weeks, I don't know, but it's still not um, like we are used to. So there, there's sort of a, a shorter and smaller logistical uh, backing that you'll have, uh, which means, again, um, you'll have to be able to, to function for a prolonged period of times without contact or without uh, uh, resupplies from some larger base somewhere in the back. And that creates, again, uh, challenges because you have to train it presumably in a different way. You have to be able to rely on local um, uh, uh, populations and, and forces for uh, resupply, for help, uh, for uh, information. So, again, it's... it's um, uh, it's it's an environment that is very different from the Cold War or how we thought about you know, Cold War uh, fighting in Europe. And it's an environment that sort of, again, goes back to this idea of local defense. Everything is localized, right? Including the presence of allies becomes very much localized and, and tied to the location. So for the tactical level leader in those frontline states, you're seeing a decentralization of command and control and decision-making coordination being required between both military and non-military entities, be they border guards or militia or police, as yeah. well as an isolation that may not have been the case before A2AD. Going off what you said about U.S. forward presence, if we were to stage more mm -hmm. troops in those frontline states, would the same elements, decentralization, coordination, relative isolation, be defining parts of the tactical situations for U.S. troops no, I think it will be true uh, of U.S. forces, too, again, because we're not going to put gigantic bases uh, 
forces with hundreds of thousands of troops in the front line, right? So you're going to be small forces uh, uh, spread out, uh, perhaps moving. Um, you know, we used to term rotation, which I think is not uh, what we're going forward towards. It's more sort of moving around those countries. Um, and so it's 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 similar. And then, you know, U.S. forces will have to do exactly the same. You'll have, they'll have to coordinate with a whole spectrum of, of ally forces. Uh, they'll have to coordinate with a, um, uh, without necessarily um, that much uh, supervision from, from above because just the information is going to be very much localized and without the possibility of, of counting on, on quick and mass reinforcements, right? Um, again, think about, you know, there's some battle or some, some engagement that happens on the border with, I don't know, Estonia. Um, it's not clear that uh, you can call in massive reinforcements that will be arriving within hours because, well, those reinforcements uh, may not be able to land anywhere nearby because of the Russian threats. Uh, they may um, uh, land much farther and they'll have to drive there, which will take days, right? So that you have to be prepared, therefore, for sort of a lonely battle, a lonely presence, right, um, uh, along along that front line um, and not... Um, sort of mass uh, mass formations uh, coordinated by, uh, you know, uh, by some general in the background. Any strategy for NATO's defense, new or old, is obviously built upon deterrence. Hypothetically, if we have established the more forward strategy that you're suggesting and that deterrence fails, mm-hmm. how does that conflict play out? Well, you know, in order to deter, right, you, you, the objective of the deter of deterrence is that you want to prevent um, the enemy from considering an attack, right? So that's uh, that's one. When deterrence fails, then the question that we have to pose ourselves is how much do we want to put in, uh, how much effort we want to put in to restore the status quo ante, you know, the status quo before the attack. And really, I mean, the two are linked. If if the answer to the second question is that we don't want to put that much effort into restoring the status quo ante, and therefore we're fine with a small readjustment, then deterrence is not going to work, right? So the two the two questions, in many ways, have to be linked. They can't be separated. That, oh, we're going to do one thing if deterrence fails, and we're going to do something else when deterrence succeeds. I think we have to be prepared to repulse and and roll back and 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 restore the status quo ante before the attack in order for deterrence to work and and that's why that you know that that's that's a challenge because you have to create certain capabilities doctrines and presence that are not there yet right so at this point maybe we'll be one way to put it is that Maybe at this stage, if an attack happens to the, tomorrow, we can probably still defeat a Russian attack, but we already failed at deterring it because we don't have the posture necessary to do that. Right? We would have to establish, if an attack occurs tomorrow, we'll have to prepare and establish a response that we haven't done yet. Right? We have to mobilize, we have to send troops, we have to send uh, reinforcements to the allies, all things that in theory, we can, but we haven't really thought through of how to do it under those circumstances. So, you know, it's it's preparing for the worst in many ways, uh, hoping, hoping obviously that it doesn't happen. And by the fact that we are preparing for the worst, hopefully we're going to prevent that from happening. 
seems to me, you know, Russia has been demonstrating capabilities, which we knew they had, but they've been much more aggressive in showing off their, their willingness and their capability to escalate war, right? So with, um, you know, flights with, of nuclear bombers, with projection of power to Syria, which is, um, you know, among other effects of that, and maybe among other objectives of that projection of power, Russian power to Syria, is the, the demonstration of their capability and will to do so. Um, so there's, you know, a high intensity component uh, in this in this rivalry that is much present, very much present, that, and that Russia has been demonstrating that it has. The question is whether they will necessarily go with that as a first option, right? Whether they'll go with a high-intensity war as a first option. I don't think so. I think that's just a, almost like an insurance uh, uh, to say, look, we're going to do something small, but don't respond to something small because look in the back, our beautiful capabilities, projection of force, nuclear forces. One of their... Uh, points in their doctrines, uh, especially nuclear doctrine, is the so-called escalate to de-escalate uh, idea, namely that they're going to threaten, Russia will threaten or threatens escalation to nuclear war. Uh, they're going to escalate nuclear uh, and use nuclear uh, weapons in order to de-escalate a conventional conflict. So they're going to threaten us with nuclear attack in order for us not to respond conventionally to a conventional attack somewhere in Estonia or wherever they want to do. And I think that's that's exactly why limited war has to come back in, because that's really the questions that people were asking in the 1950s and 60s. How do we respond to a conventional attack by the Soviet Union then if they have nuclear weapons, right? When they have nuclear weapons, how do we do this? And, and not engage in nuclear war. So here's, you know, it's a question that we have to pose ourselves in this case. Um, and the answer to that, again, is slightly different than was in the Cold War, but the answer now, it seems to me, is, is local war presence on the local uh, uh, front line. One additional aspect, you know, we use the term hybrid war, right? It's a, one of these terms that sort of pops up, uh, has popped, you know, has, has become quite popular in the past couple of years. Um, Interesting. I, that's not a term that the Russians use, right? The Russians use a variety of terms, but one is essentially a new generation of warfare. That's their term. Uh, they use hybrid war to define our uh, strategy and our approach to conflict. They use new generation of warfare, which is, um, you know, a fairly elaborate um, uh, set of arguments and theories on on conflict, violent confrontation. Um, but the broad point here is for them, I think, is that war is not just um, military. War, when you engage in war, you use all types of state assets and powers to do so. Information, uh, propaganda, um, business, uh, and so on and so forth, right? And military is just one aspect of it. So the new generation of warfare, uh, and we're kind of engaged in that rivalry already with them. Think about propaganda, right? You probably know and watch once in a while Russia Today, right? Um, very sleek information operation, um, uh, the goal of which is not necessarily to tell an alternative truth, but just to confuse you, to put so much junk out there that you don't know what's true and what is not. Uh, that's part and partial of their approach of the new generational warfare, right? That you at a certain point, you will not know 
what's happening because there's so much stuff out there uh, and some of it is true, some of it is, is not. So think about again in terms of specific war is that one of the, the, the risk or the damage or the dangers is that an attack occurs and there'll be so much misinformation and half truths and half lies that you, you as in let's say American population or even politicians, you will not know what, what is happening, right? Uh, who's attacking whom? Who's entering whose territory, right? That's why I go back to the previous questions that you asked in the previous point. There's so much more responsibility put on the platoon or company level, right? Because that, those are the guys. They'll be there. They'll be seeing what's happening without the, necessarily the medium of you know, Russia Today propaganda. So they'll have to take decisions that uh, are not that, that they're almost impossible to take by somebody not on the spot that doesn't see what is happening on that street, on that bridge, on that field, right? Uh, and, and so maybe, you know, the, 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 what was the term that we used to use? Uh, uh, full spectrum information or something like that, right? We have full information of the battlefield. I, that, that's not going to be possible in part because of the way that Russia uh, is preparing for this type of confrontation by just obfuscating, creating chaos in the information uh, sphere. And, and I don't necessarily refer here to technical, you know, cyber war, to shutting down communication channels and so, so, so forth, which is a whole different story. Here, I'm just saying, you know, there'll be chaos, informational chaos. And therefore, how do we make a decision sitting, say, in Washington or in, in Warsaw or in, in uh, you know, Brussels, how do we make decisions not having a clear idea of what's happening? Again, the platoon company level will have to make the decision. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's yes, it's high intensity, you know, new technologies and all that, but it's, it's very much localized because everything will be decided on the spot. Uh, we've been talking about Russia and NATO because I think it's sort of the most stark example of how this limited war change has sort of manifested itself in the modern day. Where are other places, say in the Pacific or, or elsewhere, where we're potentially seeing some element of, of limited war cropping up? Um, you know, obviously the, the, um, the Pacific and the, uh, is, is the other theater that, that preoccupies us. For basic geographic regions, uh, reasons, it's a very different theater, right? It's, um, therefore, you, at West Point, you're probably less interested in Pacific in many ways than in Europe. Um, it's more of a Navy and Air Force um, arena. But um, there are, I think, analogies. Um, and the analogy is that, like Russia, I don't think China is interested in a direct high-intensity confrontation with the U.S., right? It just does not um, uh, achieve any objectives that they may want to uh, attain, so what they're um, and how they engage uh, uh, in the rivalry is essentially by small steps, a version of limited wars, right? Um, one way of putting it is, is, is the term um, salami tactics, right? You don't, you, you, you slice pieces of salami gradually and uh, you achieve your objective very gradually, uh, altering therefore even the perception in the targeted state, right? Um, you, you, you don't feel like you're losing because you just lost a little bit today and you lost a little bit tomorrow. Uh, but, you know, throughout the accumulation of these little losses, 
once you realize that you're losing, it's too late. It's, you know, the, the example usually brought was um, how do you defeat a deterrent? And I think one of the, um, I think it was Thomas Schelling, um, one of the, sort of the main minds behind deterrence, uh, used the, 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 the image of when you tell your kid not to go into the water, right? No, don't go into you know, the ocean because it's cold or, you know, you don't want to get wet. Well, the kid starts putting a toe in and you say, well, I, you know, I'm telling you not to go in the water. And the kid says, well, I didn't go to the water. It's just my toe, right? Then it's a foot. Then it's, you know, up to his knee. And before you realize, right, through these small steps, he's fully in the water. And it's too late to do anything, right? You haven't deterred him because he gradually took over and achieved the objective that he wanted to achieve. I think it's the same in Asia, right? They're not going to conquer necessarily South China Sea or, or just um, uh, take over in one swift uh, move, but they're gradually, sm- slowly building up first and islands, right? And slowly they're establishing certain precedents and, and, and gradually expanding sort of almost like in concentric circles into into those, those uh, uh, areas. So in that sense, it's, it's similar, right? It's gradual, small, uh, limited. Each step is limited, but the accumulation of these limited steps may have a larger objective and a larger outcome. Uh, that we certainly don't uh, want to prevent. Um, so it's, and, and, and to some degree, I think, you know, they are more, um, Ch- Chinese moves are more dangerous than the Russian moves. And the reason is that um, uh, the Chinese have not engaged in violent confrontation with anybody yet, right? They've been pursuing these limited steps, let's use this terms, in middle of oceans, right, the South China Sea. Um, Russia has engaged in violent wars, small, limited, peripheral, but still violence, right, with artillery duels, with a lot of casualties. And that creates um, um, sort of a greater um, opposition to that uh, um, to that type of behavior. It sort of alerts us that Russia is violent or, or, or capable of using violence, and therefore we're going to prepare for it. The Chinese are not shooting anybody yet, right? And in that sense, it's more subtle, their, um, their, um, their strategy. And from that perspective, it's more dangerous, right? Because it doesn't awaken as quickly uh, us and our allies as, as Russia has done in, in Europe. Well, great. I think I'm going to uh, wrap it up. I really appreciate you sitting down to talk to us and uh, hope we have a chance to have you back on in the future. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not reflect the official position of the United States government. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi, and I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth conversations on war, policy, and leadership.